to get it together Everybody in the world I gave up on hating you Just for hating me I gave up on hating you A long time ago
And welcome to the weekly review with Roman. Today it's Friday, May 22nd, 2020. Thanks so much for tuning in. Starting off the show with some music, as we usually do here. The first song was Mavis Staples. Uh, excuse me. I'm going to go back to check out. It's uh, called, the song's called All In It Together. And after that was Sharon Van Etten and Josh Homme with their cover of What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding. And, yeah, 
we're broadcasting live from Mutiny Radio. We're here in the Mission District in San Francisco. We're on Ramitash Ohlone land, and to learn more about the land and the folks who have been on this land since before it was colonized, please go to ramitash.com, and that's R-A-M-A-Y-T-U-S-H.com. And I also want to encourage folks to pay the Shumi land tax, and if you type in S-H-U-U-M-I land tax, you will be brought to a page where you can donate and also pay your taxes especially for folks in the East Bay. We'll be going over some news stories today, playing some music in between. Did an interview, I believe, two days ago. It's hard to keep track of time. And I pre-recorded it. And I didn't have a chance to really edit it. And that's okay. So I'll be playing the, the rough cut of it and speak with Faye from the SRA. So look forward to sharing that with you all. And big thanks to Faye for sharing some information with us. And I'm also going to be speaking about some news stories. And often on the show, it can get depressing because it is the news. <laughs> and also, I definitely want to highlight some positive things that are happening and a lot of collective actions that are happening. And I feel like it's really inspiring and it's important to recognize the victories, no matter how small they may feel, just to a reminder that there are so many folks doing a lot of really incredible organizing out there. So I want to give attention to that. Oftentimes I start with a rant. I don't know what to rant about today. I mean, I do know, and also, oh, I did have a, I, I try not to talk about my personal life too much on here. I did have a dream last night that, um, so I've got, I think we all have people in our lives where we were friends at one point, and then for whatever reason, we either drifted apart, or there was uh, some fighting, or for whatever reason, we're just maybe not as close. And I had a dream about one of these friends, who I'm still kind of connected, like we're connected on social media, but we don't really, we haven't talked in years. And in my dream, uh, this person was like, I saw them, and I was like, oh, hey. And this person was like, oh, I, I was in love with you for a long time, and that's why I was so, like, unkind to you. And suddenly that just kind of washed over all of the anger I had and frustration and sadness I had towards them about having this friendship kind of, I don't necessarily crumble, more just, like, kind of faded away. It wasn't anything, from my perspective, that felt too dramatic maybe parts of it were dramatic i don't know but it was really this nice bonding moment in my that my subconscious wanted me to experience and i recognize that that there's a theory that everything in your dream represents a part of you and every person in your dream represents a part of you so perhaps there was this uh piece of myself that was <sighs> not sure how to show love for myself i guess at that time. And I, I do, this is, I mean, I talk a lot on the show about how obviously we should have housing for all and healthcare for all. It's not, it, to me, it doesn't seem that complicated yet. A lot of folks want to push back against that. And part of it comes from my own experience of just being in between housing for years of my life and how difficult that was and how that affected my behavior in so many levels. Not that I'm not you know, accountable and uh, responsible for my behavior. It's not an excuse for it. It's just an understanding that when I wasn't sure sometimes where I was going to spend the night and or staying with friends and or sleeping on couches and or just being around, you know, being in situations that I ordinarily would not be in if I'd had stable housing. Uh, it, I was not, I just, when I didn't have as many choices, uh, it, it did not really affect my interpersonal skills that well. It had a negative effect. And uh, my substance use went up and I think that really affected some of my friendships and relationships in my life. And 
it's so crucial just to understand how important it is that folks have their own housing. I mean, it affects every single aspect of one's life. It's privacy, self-confidence, the ability to get a job and to keep a job, um, safety, health, being removed from the elements, not having to deal with police harassment as much. Um, there's so many things that just like having the basic needs, the fact that we are so far removed from that um, and the grand scheme of things here in, the, in this country is just, it's so difficult to witness day in and day out, especially, and I, I recognize this is happening um, in many places around the country and many places around the world. So it's not just something that's happening in the Bay Area. However, it's so pronounced here with the wealth disparities that there are actual billionaires who live in this city and the fact that we're not <laughs> honestly hunting them down right now and asking them, I mean, I'm all for, I won't stop anyone from making a guillotine, let me say that right now. People, there are vacant units here. It's like, it's so, the problems are so fixable. It's just the people who are in positions of power to fix it and have the ability to fix it and have the wealth to fix it, choose not to. And that's just, it's, and then I think about my own actions and, you know, I can point my finger all I want to, but it's also up to me to help support folks who are organizing and, and to, to act as well. And I recognize that. And it's just so fucking difficult when there are, when we could easily have a world where people are safe and taken care of. And it's not like it's, there are steps that we could take. I recognize it's, I mean, similar with prison abolition. Like, I'm all for that as the end game. And I recognize it's not just like, you snap your fingers and it's done and all problems are solved. But we do need to move into a world where we have compassion for one another and we look to heal and rehabilitate instead of punish people. And it seems that the folks, and obviously every case is different, and the folks who actually, who I think do need some uh, <coughs> punishment are people the, in the highest offices of the land. Yet it's uh, folks who are simply trying to live their lives who are the ones who are on the receiving end of police violence and state violence and poverty. And it's difficult to hold these you know, these, these truths of how the world is and be a part of the world. Like, I definitely want to, I, I definitely have some social anxiety to a degree, and things feel a little bit different now that there is shelter in place, and I try to go out for walks and exercise and to, I don't know if I use the word, explore is not the right word to use since so many people have been here before, but to, when I have the energy, just walk and find other parts of the city I haven't been to before, I haven't spent as much time in, and just how beautiful it is here. And at the same time, it feels frightening to go out because not a lot of folks are wearing masks. And the whole idea with wearing masks is that you're protecting other people. It's not so much you're protecting yourself, but it's a courtesy to other people because folks can have be asymptomatic, like I could be. I could have it. And if I at least if I wear a mask in public, that's one less or I should say one more barrier th uh, from that prevents me from transmitting it to someone. So that's the least thing I can do. And yeah, of course it's not uh, the most comfortable thing, 
But uh, a lot of things in this world aren't very comfortable, and I feel like it's a very the bare minimum. So, um, yeah, just encouraging folks to wear masks and social distance. And not a lot of folks. I feel like in the last week or so, I've seen more, like fewer and fewer. I've seen more and more people go out. More cars, unfortunately, gross, and uh, just more people without masks on. For a while, there was like definitely an uptick in people wearing masks, which was great and appreciated. And then suddenly it kind of stopped, especially for like the joggers. It's like especially when you're jogging, you just exert more sweat and you're breathing heavier. And uh, there are some though who wear masks, so I appreciate it. And it's really just this kind of we're just seeing how people respond under these difficult situations. And obviously not everyone's perfect, and obviously we all make mistakes. And I just want to encourage folks to try to think of other people. It's not that, well, maybe it's hard for some people. I don't know. Anyway, that's, I guess that's where my rant is. There we go. That's not so bad. All right. I mean, despite the fact that the wealth inequality is killing people, um, you know, but that's kind of the world that we're living in. So I do want to get to some news shows. I am news shows. What am I talking about? Um, there's also, ooh, there's a cover of Wilco, Nicolo, and Mavis Staples who are rehearsing The Wait, which I think I want to listen to. So perhaps I'll put that on right now, and then I will put up, I'll pull up a story to read, and I'll also sit down, because I haven't sat down yet. Although I did hear for audio recording, it's better to be standing up. So maybe I'll stand up. We'll see how this goes. All right, so this is Wilco, Nicklo, and Mavis Staples rehearsing The Wait. You can find it on YouTube. It was shared by Wilco, and this came out in 2012. Ah, those were, I'm not going to say simpler times. They were different times. And uh, let's see. I am uh, <laughs> putting up the volume here. Oh, I have the tab muted. This happens sometimes. Here we go.
Chicago. Okay, so that was, yeah, recorded in December 2011, and find it on the Wilco YouTube page. All right, I mentioned a news story. I'm still standing up. We'll see how this goes. I'm getting a little bit ready to sit down, but we'll see. This is from Berkeley side. Oakland students may get to vote for school board members. Yes, good thing. Uh, this is written by Ashley McBride, and it came out on May 20th. A November ballot measure to allow 16- and 17-year-olds to vote in school district elections would make Oakland the fifth U.S. city to lower its voting age. The Oakland City Council voted unanimously on Tuesday to place a measure on the fall, fall ballot extending—I'm going to sit down. 
I uh, tried to stand up for a while, and, uh, you know, 20 minutes, not so bad. All right, I'm going to sit down. Okay, much better. All right, the Oakland City Council voted unanimously on Tuesday to place a measure on the fall ballot extending the voting franchise to students. The council's decision was the culmination of a months-long campaign by student leaders to enable young people to have greater influence over the Oakland Unified School District's board. If approved by voters in November, Oakland would join a handful of other cities across the country, including Berkeley, that allow teens to help pick school district leaders. Students said the campaign was driven by their desire to hold school board leaders accountable for decisions affecting their education. We saw the teachers strike as kind of an like an eye opener to see how our issues weren't met, our needs weren't met, said Malia Lau, a junior at Oakland Technical High School. We decided to push this forward so that our school board is responsive to the needs of students. Lau said that during the, stri the strike last spring, students stood with their teachers on picket lines and pleaded with district officials to keep schools open and preserve important programs amidst budget cuts. Now students hope to make their voices heard at the ballot box. The idea of expanding the franchise to 16 and 17 year olds first arose at a student retreat last September for you excuse me, for OUSD's All-City Council, the student union that convened leaders from across school districts. At the time, students were fresh off a win in securing millions for the reinstated free supper program offered by the school district. But student leaders were still frustrated that their only recourse for instigating change was appealing to elected officials at board meetings. Students were tired of just speaking to the OUSD board members during public comment periods and not really feeling heard, said Lucas Brecky uh, Meisner, the executive director of Oakland Kids First, an organization that helps students organize and advocate for themselves. Students wanted a more direct way to influence policy. OUSD students were also impressed by the work with the work of Tyler Okeke, a student in the Los Angeles Unified School District who was making waves by advocating for student enfranchisement. Okeke authored a proposal directing the LAUSD superintendent to explore the implications of lowering the voting age to 16. At the end of the retreat, students wanted to explore youth voting on school board elections, said Denilson Garibo, a senior at Oakland High School who currently serves as one of the two student directors on the school board, a symbolic position that does not have voting power. Over the past several months, OUSD students held voter education workshops, registered teen voters, and met with Oakland City Council members to draw up the resolution. It was sponsored by City Council President Rebecca Kaplan and received support from several school board members, the Oakland Education Association, and Mayor Libby Schaff. However, while the resolution received broad support, some have expressed concerns that teenagers aren't knowledgeable enough to vote uh, or that they could be easily misled by deceptive campaigns. OUS, as a, I'm going to just interrupt here, as opposed to fucking adults who, like, uh, <laughs> I mean, come on. Okay. OUSD District 6 Supervisor uh, Shanti Gonzalez felt that with more time, the proposal could have been refined. The main thing is that there's no plan and no resources devoted to educating student voters to make sure they can be informed voters when this legislation is enacted, Gonzalez said. Even adults have difficulty figuring out the nuances of board elections, campaigns, and the organizations that fund them, and allowing teens to vote without a plan or resources to educate them could be irresponsible, Gonzalez said. The students who successfully campaigned for the city council to place the measure on the ballot said that they are mature enough for civic engagement and have a track record of making positive changes. 
I've experienced not having a teacher present and not having extra support after school or in class, Oakland Technical High School student Jermesha Hall told the Oakland City Council during yesterday's meeting. There are some things that I feel all students should have easy access to. I don't want future students to feel like they are powerless in that way. If we are able to balance our schoolwork, providing for our families, drive, and work, added Hall, we should have the rights to vote for things that we feel are unjust in our school system. Berkeley's student voting resolution passed with 70% of the vote in 2016, but has yet to be implemented. That measure included a stipulation that no city funds be used to enact it, leaving Berkeley Unified School District with the bill. Berkeley officials are also debating other issues, including whether to print separate ballots for teens so they don't vote in other races and determining whether they can vote by mail. San Francisco supervisors are also considering an even broader proposal to lowering the voting age to 16 for all local elections. If Oakland voters approve this measure, students hope that they'll be
All right, and welcome back. Now it sounds better. I think the mic was a little bit out before. So that was Alex Leahy with Wes Anderson. Cute video if you want to check it out. And next up, another article. And the last one I read, just to be sure folks get a chance to uh, read it, if you for some reason the mic went out before, was from Berkeley side, and that was Oakland students working on being able to vote for the school board members. Next up, positive news story here. And tenants buy properties from negligent landlord who tried to evict them. And this is from Minnesota, from the minnesotareformer.com, written by Max Nesterak, and it came out on May 19th. 38 families in South Minneapolis will gain ownership of their five apartment buildings after spending years battling their landlord, Stephen Friends. What a unusual last name for a landlord, uh, who had been trying to evict them. This is an amazing victory. I'm so happy, Chloe Jackson said in a statement Monday. She is a resident of one of the properties the, and board president of the Tenants' Rights Group uh, in uh, it's United Renters for Justice, which is in, I'm sorry, I'm going to probably mispronounce this, in Quilinics Unidix for Hustia. In 2017, Franz was banned from holding rental licenses in Minneapolis for five years because of chronic neglect, fraud, and pest infestations. He then owned more than 60 apartment buildings in Minneapolis and faced one of the largest class action lawsuits against a private landlord in the country. Wow. He settled for a record-setting setting $18.5 million and served time in the Hennepin County Workhouse for perjury related to the case, but he maintained ownership of the properties, which were managed by a court-appointed administrator. While 38 families in five buildings sought to form a cooperative and buy their buildings from him, friends had been trying to evict them for the past year, saying he needed to vacate the properties to sell them. Eviction seemed certain once the pandemic hit, since the families, most of whom are immigrants and don't have health care or access to government benefits, had collectively gone on rent strike. They had decided to pool their money to help each other buy groceries or pay medical bills should someone become sick with COVID-19. Minneapolis Mayor Jacob Fry praised the sale, which will be funded in part with an interest-free loan from the city. This collaborative effort reflects local government done right, Fry said in a statement. Work like this makes clear the value of persistence in fighting for our residents and strategically dedicating resources to increase housing stability, even in times of crisis. The Land Bank Twin Cities bought the five properties, bought, excuse me, bought the five properties in the Cork Grand neighborhood for $7.1 million with a loan from the city and the local initiative support corporation, Twin Cities. The two entities will also provide financing to make necessary repairs to the properties. Over the next two years, the Land Bank Twin Cities will transfer ownership of the properties to the residents who have, been na who have named the buildings the Sky Without Limits Community. They plan to own the buildings as a cooperative and allow more families to move in. Just 34 of the 69 units are, complete, are currently occupied. I am euphoric, said resident Vanessa Del Campo Chacon in a statement Monday. This is the result of lots of arduous hard work, and I believe this victory will be felt throughout the whole city. Awesome. So again, you can find that article on michiganreformer.com, written by Max Nesterak, and it came out on May 19th. Next up, I'm going to go to, this is from a, a tweet um, from Zoran K. Mamdani, and Zoran wrote, uh, writes, 
I'm already mixing up my words a little bit here. I'm going to slow down. I did have a lot of strong coffee this morning. I think that's part of it. Rosalind Morrison is a leader in the effort to get vulnerable detainees out of Rikers during COVID-19 crisis. She says that while DAs in the Bronx and Brooklyn have been more understanding, Melinda Katz has fought to keep people locked up. We can't look away from what's happening. So I am going to now um, share the audio clip. And this is about a minute and a half. Efforts that, that you and LA uh, have been moving on in, in light of COVID-19. How successful would you say these efforts have been? And what would you say has been both the biggest victories as well as the biggest setbacks? We had a lot of success in the world. It just seems like, you know, maybe they were more open um, to the consideration of, you know, the fact that, you know, medically vulnerable people, people who risk ill um, should not be incarcerated to the greatest extent possible. There was also a lot of success in Brooklyn where I, again, I think there's just a great sense of atmosphere and openness. I can't help but notice, right, the absence of Queens from from that list of successes. And Queens DA Melinda Katz has said that her office has been cooperative with the effort to free vulnerable detainees. My sense is, is really that there has not been overwhelming support. I think there have been some um, release or some agreement, but it's really not a broad and overwhelming release. And I think that when I look at the campaign promises, she painted herself as like this um, reformer and someone who was, you know, open to the will of the people and there are too many people in jail and, you know, it, that I just have not found that to be honest or consistent with what's happened since COVID-19 for sure and definitely not pre-COVID-19. And that was posted by Zoran Mamdani and you can follow Zoran on Twitter at Z-O-H-R-A-N-K-M-A-M-D-A-N-I. And Zoran is running a candidate for New York's 36th AD for the Astoria, Dittmar's Steinway, Astoria Heights neighborhood, which I used to live in. So thanks for sharing that, Zoran. And yeah, okay. Next up, I'm going to do one more article. I'm going to play the interview that I did with Faye at around 1 o'clock, so please do stay tuned for that. I'm going to do another article here that has a bit to also do with landlords. And then I'll probably play some music. This is from blogto.com. Toronto renters are now staging protests outside the mansions of their landlords. This is in the real estate section. This is written by Lauren O'Neill, and it was posted two days ago. <coughs> Apartment tenants who have been threatened with eviction for not having enough money to pay rent amid a global pandemic continue to organize in Toronto and beyond as part of the hashtag keepyourrent movement. And their most recent IRL action hit landlords closer to home than ever. Parkdale organized the legal advocacy organization spearheading these local rent strike campaigns, described how GTA tenants descended upon the homes of their corporate landlords last week to collectively voice their demands for no evictions and for rent forgiveness for all tenants unable to pay during the COVID-19 crisis. Tenants from buildings in Scarborough, Missagua, and Parkdale are said to have visited the sprawling mansions of CEOs from major real estate enterprises such as Pinedale Properties and Starlight Investments on Wednesday during a virtual annual general meeting of the Federation of Rental Housing Providers of Ontario. 
and for short, it's FRPO. And they share um, a tweet from Keep Your Rent Toronto. You can follow them at Keep Your Rent. They provide photos as well. That's on Twitter. Our first stop was the home of Pinedale Property CEO George Grossman. Grossman's company owns the buildings at 7, 9, and 11 Crescent Place, where company reps have visited tenants' units demanding the on-the-spot, demanding on-the-spot rent payments with a handheld ATM. Fucking gross. Uh, reads a blog post on the Parkdale organized website. A company rep told one bereaved tenant whose relative had died from COVID-related illness that COVID is nothing and that the economy needs to keep going. Fuck you. Excuse me. Parkdale organized said that Grossman opted to cower inside his mansion while they were on his front lawn, but that they were they were able to deliver a letter to a domestic worker employed at his residence. And they provide another tweet as well from Keep Your Rent Toronto. Next, we descended on the home of Starlight Investment CEO Daniel Drimmer, reads the post. In 2019, Starlight added to its real estate empire, buying GTA apartment buildings valued at, at a total of $3.75 billion. Despite its growing financial power, in the past two months, Starlight repeatedly sent notices to tenants demanding rent payments and threatening to issue legal eviction notices. Protesters say they saw Drimmer pacing on his back patio while speaking on the phone. Parkdale organized says that Drimmer called Toronto Police Services and reported a group for hate speech. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, a reminder, being a landlord, just like being a cop, is a job choice. It's not an identity. All right. While protesters did not make contact with either of the landlords, they are encouraging apartment rent tenants to learn more about who owns their buildings. They also continue to urge others to keep their money in solidarity when the next rent payment deadline rolls around. Today, tenants made it clear that we will continue to organize with our neighbors, wrote Parkdale Organize, of the mansion protests. Unless landlords' threats of eviction and demands for rent repayments are withdrawn and rent forgiven for tenants unable to pay during the crisis, we are prepared to escalate our action by bringing greater numbers of our neighbors to confront even more landlords where they live and do business. Fucking awesome. Yay. Good for y'all. That's awesome. Again, you can follow uh, the folks here on Twitter at, at Keep Your Rent. Okay. Let's see. All right. So I'm going to play some music. And I'm actually going to, first of all, I, I was able to, perhaps if you listened to the show before, you can tell that sometimes it's a little bit more scatterbrained than you. It's a very DIY show. Sometimes I plan, sometimes I don't plan, sometimes I don't plan enough, etc. I was able to go through the stories I wanted to share, and I have a pretty solid list going on, and I also have a means to check off the ones that I have shared already. So I feel rather organized today, although I do feel like that mic may have been off for part of that first story. My apologies. I wanted to share also some upcoming events that folks can participate in because I do feel like it's uh, helpful just to have events uh, a lot of virtual events that are happening that folks can participate in and be in community so I did want to share that and I'm going to <laughs> scroll down I think hopefully well first of up it's more it's like a, a website that folks can check out and this is covidgriefnetwork.org I'm going to click on it now and read a description. So this is not so much an event. Uh, it's a resource for folks. Again, 
COVID network, covidgriefnetwork.org, undoing isolation for young adults grieving the illness or death of someone close to COVID-19, our offering. Are you in your 20s or 30s? Have you lost someone close to, co- close to COVID-19? Or is someone you love ill with COVID-19? Get connected to a community of young adults who know what it's like and, f- and free one-on-one support from a volunteer grief worker. Can you offer support? Are you a therapist, chaplain, spiritual director, grief counselor, facilitator, life coach, mindfulness practitioner, or healer? Do you know how to show up for people in grief? Are you willing to donate your support in this crisis? And I also have a link for that as well. So again, um, please do check this out. You can go to covidgriefnetwork.org. I also wanted to share, want to share present tense, the live document I've been sharing now for a few months, that it's a document that's for folks around the world and it's a mutual aid document, and you can find it by going to bit.ly forward slash COVID-19 Collective Care. And there's pages upon pages of resources. Some of it's based on location. Some of it's based on um, groups that folks may be affiliated with. There's a whole, I can't even fully explain all of the all of the information that's there, but it's a really awesome resource, so I do want to share that with folks. Again, bit.ly forward slash COVID-19 Collective Care. Okay, next up. Next up. All right, we're, okay, I'm going to get to that one later, that one later. Okay, this is a, an upcoming event, so I will share that. And this is happening on May 25th, Monday, May 25th. This is from Code Pink. Celebrate International Women's Day for Peace and Disarmament. Disarmament. Join or organize a peace caravan. Hashtag healthcare not warfare. That's, um, I think that's my, that's similar to my Twitter handle, which is awesome. And, um, which I've heard many times before in many places. Or at least, anyway, a lot of places. Hashtag war is not green. Join or organize a peace caravan for Memorial Day Monday, May 25th. Historically, Memorial Day has been used to mourn the dead, but in a way that almost idealizes war. This Memorial Day, join us to organize caravans for peace and disarmament. So there will be no more war dead and who need to be who need to be remembered. Oh, hey, I want to reread that. Historically, Memorial Day has been used to mourn the dead, but in a way that almost idealizes war. This Memorial Day, join us to organize caravans for peace and disarmament. So there will be no more war dead who need to be remembered. This Memorial Day coincides with the UN Secretary General's call for a global ceasefire, saying the fury of the virus illustrates the folly of war. It also follows the May 24th International Women's Day for Peace and Disarmament, a day to raise up the cost of weapons and war to the planet. Uh, Please consider organizing a caravan in your community. (laughs) I'm going all over the place here with my voice. It's easy. It can be as small as two to three cars. It's safe. You stay in your cars. It's fun. People really want to come out in a safe way and do actions together. It's media friendly. The press is looking for actions to cover. It's important. We need to be visible in demanding that our country focus on fighting this virus and the climate crisis, not each other. Each community will shape their caravan as they want. So they have a list of events that are already planned. United States in D.C. The meetup location is at the fuck, excuse me, the White House. I so For some reason, I just ha- happened to use the F word when I wanted to say, when I was supposed to say White House. I wonder why. Um, the meetup location is at the White House on the corner of Pennsylvania Avenue and 7th Street. Some people will be walking 
some will be driving. Our route will be going towards and ending at the Cuban embassy as Cuba is a perfect example of hashtag healthcare not warfare, May 25th at noon Eastern Standard Time. In Arizona, in Phoenix, we will meet at 2020, excuse me, don't, don't do that, not 2020, that's not true. In Arizona, in Phoenix, we will meet at 22, <laughs> we will meet at 2201 East Camelback Road, number 115, May 25th at 10 a.m. Mountain Time. In California, in Los Angeles, we are meeting with Jewish Voices for Peace at the Santa Monica Airport parking lot to spell peace with our cars. We will photograph this with a drone. Then divide into three groups to caravan with our messages of peace and deliver care packages for the growing houseless populations in L.A. May 25th, 11 a.m., Pacific Time. In North San Diego, we will meet at 1022 Highland Drive, May 25th, 11 a.m. Pacific Time. In SLO, that's San Luis Obispo, Morro Bay, we will meet at Foster's Freeze, May 25th at 1 p.m. Pacific Time. Here in San Francisco, the caravan will end at Senator Dianne Feinstein's SF resident map of route to be distributed at Meetup Place, May 25th at noon. Uh, in San Jose, we will be meeting at Stevens Creek and Winchester Boulevards, May 25th, 3 p.m. Pacific Time. In Florida, there's a lot of these I'm noticing. Uh, in Miami, we will caravan to Senator Marco Rubio's home since he has been pushing war on Venezuela and crippling sanctions on Cuba. Also, I want to call attention to not using the word crippling as this kind of uh, verb. Okay, that's May 25th, 11 a.m. Eastern, Eastern Time. Iowa City, Iowa, Iowa City, the plan is to drive in a circle through the town beginning at Mercer Park, head downtown, and then back to Mercer Park, May 25th, 11 a.m. Central Time. Kansas, in Salina, the meetup location will be at the Sidewalk Museum of Congress. I'm so curious as to what a sidewalk museum is. May 24th, 4 p.m. Central Time. Maryland, in Baltimore, there will be two routes for drivers and pedestrians, May 25th, 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Michigan and Grand Haven, we will provide route maps at the meetup location. And I'm guessing if you get in touch with the individual groups, they will have um, the meetup location there. And if you go to codepink.org, they have everything listed. So if you click on the link to the specific locations, they will provide more information. Missouri and Kansas City, the route will include going through Midtown and through some weapons parts plants. Ooh, yeah, fuck those weapons parts plants. That's May 25th, 10 a.m. Also the one for in Mich Grand Haven, Michigan's 11.45 a.m. Eastern Time. And the Kansas City, that's right, May 25th, 10 a.m. Central Time. New Mexico and Taos, we will meet up at Smith's parking lot before driving to the plaza in downtown, 11.45 Mountain Time. In New York, New York City, we'll meet at John Lennon Memorial Park, Imagine Circle, and Strawberry Fields at noon Eastern Time. In Ohio, in Columbus, the action is in support of detainees in Morrow County Jail, immigrants who will 100% have COVID infections, and that's at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. In Oregon, in Portland, the location will be at Peninsula Park, May 25th at noon Pacific Time. In Pennsylvania, and Philadelphia, time and location to be announced please contact David Gibson and there's information, contact information in the event page if you're interested. And in Texas, in Dallas, location TBA, 11 a.m. Central Time. You also, if you wanna create your own event, you can add your event and you can click on the page and add the event there. 
take our pledge here and join social media team. You can also do that. They also have posters and resources. I want to print them out. Nice. War is not green. Global peace now. I heart healthcare workers. Healthcare not warfare. Awesome. I want to print these out. All right, cool. So, oh my gosh, it's almost one. Let me uh, put on a song, and then I'll get up the uh, the interview around 1 p.m. Thanks so much for tuning in. Listen to Mutiny Radio. I'm talking a lot. I'm going to rest my voice for a little while here. Okay. All right. So here's the song I heard on The Current recently. And this is from Sampa the Great called Final Form. And, of course, it's uh, not of course, but I should say sometimes with YouTube they start playing the ads. So I'm going to wait for the ad to play. And then uh, play the music. Here we go. That's uh, <laughs> incorrect. That's the song I already played. Let me uh, uh, click on this one here. And uh, there we go. Here we are. This is Sampa the Great, Final Four. Trying to finish what they started and we made it. Wait, say I'm in, 
in all states I'm in. I might find a form in my melanin. Wait, state I'm in. In all states I'm in. I might find a form in my melanin. Wait, state I'm in. In all states I'm in. I might find a form in my melanin. Wait, state I'm in. In all states I'm in. I might find a form in my melanin. That was Sampa the Great with Final Form. Uh, you can follow, uh, you can find uh, Sampa's videos at Sampa the Great on YouTube. And next up, I'm going to share the interview that I did with uh, Faye from SRA recently. And I'm going to apologize in advance. And I didn't have a, not that I didn't, I just did not edit it. So my apologies. I have the ability and did not put in the time to do that. So. It's a very DIY show, and putting that out there. And also, I wasn't quite as – I would have liked to have been more prepared uh, with the questions, and it was one of those days I was not feeling uh, perhaps at my best. So I'm just wanting to, to share that there and be okay with that. So the interview got cut off at a certain part, and so we ended up redoing it a little bit. So I'm going to – I'll share both of them because I feel like there's – information in both that's helpful to know and and uh yeah the first one's about five minutes and then the second one's about 12 minutes so here we go and this is me talking with Faye. okay record I'm, I'm and there i am probably being like i'm not that great at tech and blah 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 blah, blah. so much for calling in there we go hi it's nice to meet you my name is Faye. i'm the co-founder of the socialist rifle association and my pronouns are she and her Thanks. Um, I use uh, he, him pronouns. Awesome. Yeah. So I, let's see, I've heard like a little bit about the SRA and I definitely follow a lot on Twitter and I've met some folks affiliated with it at the, sorry, that was a cat, um, at the uh, Howard Zinn Book Fair that happened in San Francisco a few months ago. It's hard to keep track of time. And I really um, appreciate the folks who have organized it. And I'm just also curious to, learn more definitely uh yeah um big shout out to our uh, bay area uh, sra chapter we've got a lot of really great folks out there um and they're doing some really great mutual aid work i um so let me let me start off by talking about how the sra is so um the socialist rifle association is an educational and advocacy organization uh, dedicated to providing people um who are on the left or who are members of marginalized uh, communities or minorities, educating them about firearms, uh, firearm safety, uh, use and handling, uh, and generally how, you know, attempting to build a sort of left-wing gun culture uh, in opposition to the more, you know, machismo sort of right-wing gun culture that's out there. Um, we also uh, do a lot of uh, mutual aid and disaster relief work. Uh, you know, our sort of philosophy is based on community defense. We've taken some cues from the Black Panthers, although we're not exactly uh, that type of organization, but uh, we definitely have a view of community defense that 
extends beyond, you know, carrying guns around, but uh, is much more focused on things like providing people's needs, uh, doing community gardens, providing, you know, uh, aid to the homeless um, and to, you know, other groups standing in solidarity with marginalized groups. So, yeah, we, we're doing a lot of work along those lines right now, especially um, with COVID-19. Yeah, and I appreciate that you did bring up the Black Panthers because I think about how they started the, the breakfast program and, and fed their communities. And oftentimes through, I guess, propaganda and a lot of misinformation, they were thought to be just this, you know, people saw them as like a violent organization. However, they were protecting their communities and feeding each other. And it's such an important part of community defense is helping one another out. And it's not just about um i guess militarism absolutely and that has its place i certainly think that in the case of the black panthers they definitely uh took the right you know took the right road with their cop watching and the demonstrations that they did mm -hmm. but you really have to you know one thing that i sort of uh try to discourage um through my work with the sra is discouraging people from uh you know going around and being militaristic just because they want to, you know, just because they want to role play or, you know, project that aesthetic. Like if you're going to do that sort of thing, it needs to be a strategic choice that is very well thought out and you need to do it correctly. Um, otherwise, a lot of the time, uh, armed demonstrations are not the correct choice and it's much more beneficial to the community to do disaster relief or, you know, to directly help people who need it like the breakfast uh, program or like the disaster relief work the SRA is doing. Like I mentioned before, our Bay Area chapter, um, last year they had purchased a stockpile of N95 masks. Oh yeah, yeah. Which were going to be, um, because fire season in 2018 was so bad and there was so much smoke, they wanted to distribute those uh, to unhoused people who were going to be exposed to that smoke all the time. Um, well, it turns out that uh in our in our current times uh it's much more useful um that chapter has gone and distributed uh respirator masks to social workers and unhoused people uh, mm -hmm. who are out in public and i believe that they're working on uh, making their own hand sanitizer which is something our la chapter started doing so mm -hmm. there's a lot of good good work coming out of there and again big shout out to the uh, bay area chapter of the sra yeah so how can folks um take how can folks i guess be, like reach out um to help out or to donate with the organization uh for sure so um to join the sra um you can go to our website at socialistra.org membership is 25 dollars per year uh, we also have a dues waiver application process although uh right now it's a little bit janky because we're transitioning uh some of our back-end software it's not working great, uh, and it might take. All right, so we got cut off a little bit. Oh. So now we will play the uh, hello second part of our interview here. Start my thought because I know where it cut off. Oh, um, sure. So, uh, on the other hand, if you don't want to join the SRA, if you just want to uh, work together with one of our chapters, you can feel free to reach out to them on social media. Most of our chapters uh, have a Facebook or a Twitter account. 
um, you can reach out to them there. And uh, hopefully, especially if you're another local organization, uh, start working together. I, the SRA, I definitely encourage uh, SRA chapters to work in coalition with other leftist and progressive groups. Mm -hmm. Very cool. I was hoping, I have a question for those of us, I wasn't really brought up with firearms at all and was like the most I knew about them I kind of saw in movies and TV, which is, yeah, that's kind of like, <laughs> and I was just curious as to, for those of us who have maybe like only have like a very limited um, information about it or would like to start to learn more, do you have any tips for how folks can, um, I guess, like learn more or certain pieces that folks should start out with? And I guess it's, I'm sure like it's a whole wide range of um, it's a it's a whole big topic. But I'm just curious as to folks who might be unsure of where to start exactly. What would be some good steps that folks could take? For sure. So uh, the SRA has a guide on our website. Um, mm -hmm. If you go under our education tab, um, we have a booklet called Rifles for Rookies, oh. a firearm manual for the completely new. Um, if you want just a basic crash course in what 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 are guns and what do they do, that's a great place to start. Um, if you're thinking about uh, buying a gun, or you know, uh, you know, if, or if you want to buy a gun, you can reach out. Um, you can ask uh, an SRA member, or you you can reach out on social media. Um, most chapters should be pretty willing, you know, to answer basic. Uh, firearms questions. Um, if you're interested, if you do want to buy a gun, if you have no experience, um, if you're totally new, then uh, generally I would recommend that people start out with a 22 caliber rifle or a 22 caliber pistol, um, which are guns that are um, legal in most states, especially in California. Um, you can get 22s without too much issue. Uh, they're very low recoil. They're not super loud. That you still need to wear hearing protection. Yes. Um, they don't. Ha they don't have much recoil. They're very. Uh, the ammunition is very inexpensive. Generally, you can buy 22 caliber ammunition. Buy. They come in 500 round boxes, um, mm -hmm. and it's very very inexpensive. So that's generally the best place for people to start off. Um, finding a place to shoot, especially in a city like San Francisco. Um, or the Bay Area in general can be a little bit difficult, um, or if not difficult, um, ex is kind of expensive. Most of the because of the regulatory red tape, most ranges have to go through. In California, uh, generally the fees to shoot are very high, and they're very busy ranges. Mm -hmm. But um, again, reaching out to an SRA chapter, they can probably give you information on. Uh, what are good ranges that are not um, super conservative, super pro-Trump? Yes. You know, always the ones that are less uh, always full of police um, and other people who might make new shooters, especially from, you know, uh, certain backgrounds uncomfortable. Right. So, Yeah, I appreciate you, you mentioning that because I think that's a whole other piece that's kind of missing from the, the gun control conversation is that it's ridiculous that cops have and the cops have like so much military grade weaponry and that doesn't seem to enter into the conversation at all when folks call for gun reform and it's like if the if the cop if the police are going out with these you know ridiculous weapons it doesn't make any sense that that shouldn't be the first place if we're going to look to not to demilitarize i guess the um 
the country. Definitely. And it's, I also like to point out that in California, our police are almost completely exempt from the vast majority of our gun laws here. Oh, I don't know. Um, yeah, there's the uh, laws on assault weapons or the laws restricting access to handguns are almost completely waived for police or, or else they're given shortcuts through that system. Um, Ex-cops are allowed to concealed carry, um, even in counties where, like San Francisco or LA County, where it's very difficult to impossible for a private citizen to carry a gun. Um, police officers essentially get the right to carry for life, um, including many members of LAPD and other suspect departments that, you know, where some of these police officers may have engaged in very, uh, what should be criminal behavior, honestly. Um, so it's, it's a big issue. Um, I, I think, you know, one of, the, one of the laws here in California is that we have a roster of what handguns you're allowed to buy at retail. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, if it's not on the roster, you can't buy it from a gun store. Um, you, have, you can buy it from a, you know, a pr- private individual through a private transfer, um, but you can't buy it from a gun store or order it from out of state. Police are completely exempt from that. And so police will order handguns from out of state and in some cases then resell those uh, privately at a profit, which is something that the Pasadena Police Department got in trouble for. Um, they ended up selling over five, they ended up buying and reselling over 500 pistols, many of which ended up in the hands of gang members. So uh. my, my one of my main planks as far as gun control is, you know, you can, there are all kinds of arguments that we should have more or less gun control, but as far as I'm concerned, police are civilians and should be subject to the exact same firearms restrictions, both on and off duty as any other civilian. Right. In my my view. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Thank you for that. There's like, there's so much to, yeah, there's so much to learn. So I really appreciate you you sharing that information. And I'm sure it also just, it changes from like state to state and county to county as well. So. Oh, definitely. There's so much information out there. Yeah. Yeah, so I think those were like mostly, I'm a, I'm a little bit out of order, Not, but though, if, even if we were doing this on Friday, I probably still would be a little bit out of order, to be honest, it's a very <laughs> DIY show, so I'm like, oh, let me wrap up with this, or um, is there anything else you wanted to share? I'm pretty open to um, anything else you wanted to talk about um, with the SRA or anything else um, with organizing? Um... I'm not sure. So one of the big things going on in the SRA right now, um, we've gone through a lot of rapid growth and expansion over the past year. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been a broad trend towards leftists becoming more comfortable with firearms and the growth of what some people call the armed left, mm-hmm. the, you know, especially since um, Charlottesville, August 11th and 12th. Right. Um, and so the SRA the last year has just exploded in terms of growth. Um, we recently hit 5,000 members. Wow. Um, and at the beginning of the year, we were at 3,000. So uh, because of that, the SRA is actually in the process of restructuring. Uh, mm-hmm. We've uh, had a referendum to approve new bylaws. Um, we previously had sort of a central committee structure. Um, that's being abolished and replaced with the National Assembly and dedicated admin staff. Um, just in terms of scaling as a national organization. And so 
one of the things that's going on, I'm, I co-founded the organization uh, back in uh, spring of 2018, um, and I'm uh, and I've been the vice president for most of the time since. Mm -hmm. uh, in uh, about 10 days, as of this recording, I will no longer be the vice president because we're abolishing that position entirely. Mm -hmm. And so, one of the things that we found has been most successful is really organizing when you're organizing at a national scale it's really beneficial i think to have a very you know sort of federated um oh, what's the word um to have a very sort of um chapter focused basis for an organization yeah i really think that one of the biggest strengths of the sra is its chapters and all the like on the ground activism that people are doing mm -hmm. um i think that's really some of the most valuable uh, work that we're doing and i'm really glad that we're able to reform our structure to give even more voice and power to local chapters who are actually putting in you know actually going out and doing like the mutual aid that i was talking about before yes yeah cool oh well <sighs> Awesome. Well, thanks so much for, yeah, just, yeah. Thank you for, I think putting in the work is like the first thing that comes to mind to um, co-create this, you know, organization. Cause I feel like when I first heard about it, I was like really relieved in a lot of ways. Cause I feel like just, there's so much among the left, like either infighting or lack of agreeing on tactics. And it feels so frustrating and disappointing and sad a lot of the time. Um, you know, knowing how difficult it can be for folks to like find common ground and to also just keep something going, given that there will be disagreements along the way. So I, you know, the more I hear about it, the um, the happier it makes me. And I just feel really grateful <laughs> for organizations like the SRA that are out there. And for a lot of other folks who are looking for other organizations to join and or to learn from and or partner with. Um, that's just, it's good. It's like very reassuring. I definitely don't want to give the impression that there's never been any infighting or sectarianism in the SRA because we've had to deal with it. And as the vice president, I've often had to be the face person to deal with these issues. But I will say that for every person who engages in sectarianism or petty infighting, there's 10 or a dozen people who are actually putting in the work and getting along with their comrades both locally and nationally and actually getting out there and doing praxis. And that's what really matters. You know, there's always going to be arguments and pe petty fights on the left, but I, I'm really, really happy to see how much the SRA has accomplished uh, in spite of that and going above and beyond that. And I, I'm really proud of the, what our organization has accomplished. Cool. Well, thanks so much for, yeah, for, for sharing this. And I look forward to hearing more. And there's also a, a podcast, yes? Yes, there is. Uh, I host the um, SRA podcast. You can find us on pretty much every podcast app now, including Spotify and, um, and uh, app, uh, you know, iTunes and all the other, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Um, I try to put out at least one or two per month. Um, yeah, it's it's talking about the organization and related topics, and it's a it's a good listen if you've got the time. Excellent. Well, we many of us have do have time, so <laughs> yeah, cool. All right. Well, thank well, you so much for having me on. Thank you for being on. Um, appreciate it, and we'll talk again soon.
Absolutely. Have a good one. You too. All right. Big thanks to Faye for sharing lots of great info. And yeah, yes, yes, and yes. Cool. Okay. I'm going to play some music, and then we'll be back with a few more news stories, and we'll wrap up the program. I mentioned, if you were a regular listener of the show, and thank you, thank you regardless, no matter who you are, for listening, and I went to the library before it closed and got a few extra records, because I had a feeling this would be going on for a while, and one of them that I I still have is uh, Nico Case's album, Hell On. And I brought the, I listened to it again yesterday and I was like, ah, really good album. So here's one of my favorite tracks from the album called Halls of Sarah. And be back with a little bit um, after this. And I might play another song afterwards. So please do stay tuned. And big thanks to all the folks out there listening. Really appreciate it. Be back in a bit. Childless widow of a nation You cry like guns across the water Yet we expect you to bring springtime It isn't fair Searchlights wither in your hair
And welcome back. That was Nico Case with Halls of Sarah. Gonna play some more music, rest my voice a little bit, and then we'll be back with a few more news stories for folks. Thanks again so much for tuning in to Mutiny Radio. We'll do a plug for the station right now. Mutiny Radio! We're here on the corner of 21st and Florida. We've got shows here every day of the week. Please tune in, mutinyradio.fm. We also have the archives and shows that have been here over the years. And we want to encourage folks to donate if you're able. If you go to mutinyradio.fm, you can donate there. There also is, we have a Venmo, Mutiny Radio, all one word, I believe. Go to the Mutiny Radio website, though, just to double check for sure. And also have a Patreon set up. Big thanks to all the patrons supporting the show over the years. And um, I don't update it too often. I'm not trying to, you know, talk down about myself. It's more just uh, there are folks who are really um, focused on, like, putting their work out there. And I, I believe in the content. I believe in coming here every week and doing a show and sharing information with people. And as far as, you know, asking for support on the financial front, that's a little bit tricky for me, recognizing that there's so many other folks out there who really um, – I want to just encourage to donate to other folks as well. So it's hard for me to ask for funds for myself. I do feel, though, if you're able to, please do give us a few bucks a month at patreon.com forward slash weekly rev. That helps to pay the dues here at the station. And we've lost a few uh, patrons over the over the few months. I know it's been difficult for a lot of folks. But if you're able to, a dollar a month would be super awesome. Patreon.com forward slash weekly rev. You can also find me on Venmo, roman.com. Dash Rhymer? Yeah, that's it, I believe. Uh, uh, yeah, oh, wow. That's that's great. Um, yeah, so do the Patreon thing. Find me there. Cool. All right. Here's a song by Labi Sifre from 1975. Cool. All right. We'll play this, and we'll be back. Uh, we'll be back in a bit. Please do stay tuned. <laughs>
Saturday 
the show so i'm going to play some music first up though i'm going to share some articles that folks can read or check out if you're interested i'll provide the headlines and if you'd like to do further reading please do so and these are ones that i was planning to read or wanted to and just feeling oh actually uh this is um i'm gonna play it from kqd why are so many east bay pizza shops cooperatively owned so i'm just gonna play it hey that's great i get to rest my voice share what I wanted to, and here we go. Find this at KQED. This is by Kiana um, Mokadam, and it came out on May 21st, so I'm going to play this right now. I'm not sure how long it is, so... Uh, From KQED. We'll, we'll see. Can you hear that? If you're one of those people who has stepped up your baking while sheltering in place, maybe experimenting with sourdough starter, you will know what it is. It's the sound of working with fresh dough. For listener Columbia Schaefer, her fascination with a certain kind of dough, pizza dough, prompted her to give us a call back in January. So I was wondering about all of the cooperative and employee-owned pizza places that I see in the Bay Area. Columbia was walking on Grand Avenue in Oakland one day when she noticed a new Zachary's Pizza Shop was opening. They were, you know, putting all the new paint on the doors and it said 100% employee-owned. And I was like, huh, Zachary's is employee-owned, Arismendi is employee-owned, Cheeseboard, probably the most famous employee-owned. It just seemed like a really high percentage of all the pizza places I go eat at were, um, you know, cooperatives and employee-owned. That got her thinking. Why? pizza places are cooperatives and employee-owned when other businesses aren't. You know, I don't see sandwich shops or ramen shops or things like that. Today, we're tossing up a story about how this co-op pizza phenomenon began. Plus, we'll get a schooling on how these businesses work. I'm Olivia Allen Price. This is Bay Curious.
Support for KQED comes from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, family-owned, operated, and argued over since 1980. Proud supporter of independent thought, whether that's online, over the air, or in a bottle. More at sierranevada.com. To get to the bottom of Columbia's pizza question, Kiana Mogadam explores the world of employee ownership right here in the Bay Area. Pizza. Why pizza? Well, turns out there's a kind of simple answer to Columbia's question, and it all goes back to... Cheese board. The cheese board. Cheese board. The cheese board. It started off with the cheese board bakery, as you know, in Berkeley, and they've been around for 40-something years. That's Asia Green. She's an owner and baker at the Emeryville Airs Mendy location. They started their worker co-op, and then members of the cheese board wanted to expand the idea of, of worker cooperatives in the Bay Area. Okay, a little history for you. The Cheese Board opened in 1967 as a small cheese shop in Berkeley, California. Four years later, the shop transitioned to a worker-owned business, a cooperative, and they added fresh baked breads and pastries to their menu. The pizza? That came in 1985 when the bakers started playing with their extra dough, cheese, and vegetables from the marketplace next door. It was a hit. And with the success of Cheese Board and their democratically run business model founded on the concept of community, others wanted in. In 1996, the Cheese Board helped found the Arizmendi Association of Cooperatives. They provided the business model, recipes, and financial backing, all with the goal of growing a cooperative network of bakeries throughout the Bay Area. There are a number of other pizza and bakery spots founded by Cheese Board alum and family, including Sliver Pizzeria and Diamond Slice. Today, there are six Arizmendi locations. We all start off with the same model but we all kind of change it a little bit, you know. The Emeryville location sits right on San Pablo Ave. Within just a few blocks, you've got Pixar Studios, a community center, a senior center, the Oaks Club, and multiple schools. It's a diverse community, and one the bakers keep in mind when they're setting their menu and their prices. Asia worked in restaurants for ages before she became a baker and owner at Mendy. I applied off an of add-on Craigslist, just like everybody else, and got in for a a six-month trial. The trial is kind of like a tryout. You spend six months as a regular employee building a relationship with the team. And then after six months, there's a vote. And the members either vote you in to become a full-time worker owner where you're part of the profit share or not. And once you're in, you're in as an owner of that specific location. Otherwise, there's sometimes the option to stay on call as a temporary worker. Because we're owners, we control everything. We do payroll. We, we, so we, we're in charge of HR. You know, the person who's mopping the bathrooms with you also cuts your checks. And the person who helps you do pizza also designs all of our logos and things like that. And everyone takes part in making decisions. Here we have a monthly owner's meeting and everyone's invited. First we talk about, how are you doing? And then we go on to say, okay, what's our agenda? What do we want to talk about? Do we want to change our prices or do we want to start doing Um, colored hairnets, just anything that you want to talk about, we all make decisions on. It's all by general consensus. We talk about what it was like for you to come into this role to like be in an owner position compared to some of the like previous work that you've done in the past. What, What did that feel like? What did that look like for you in your daily life? It's a huge difference. Most restaurants, you come in, you do your job, you do it as well as you can, as fast as you can and you leave and you don't really try and take any of it with you. Being an owner, it it stays with you because you want to make sure that your business survives. 
I'm a mom of three. And so when I first came, I was like, I just want steady hours and I just want to be able to like take care of my kids and work somewhere where I feel like I'm, I can progress. You know, a lot of jobs don't have places for you to go. And here they're like, well, great. Do you want to learn HR? Do you want to learn how to do the finance? I stopped by the Emeryville shop in February, right after they'd opened up again for business. You see, they'd been shut for over a year because a car drove into the back wall of their building in December of 2018, causing a gas leak fire and long closure of the bakery. It was a little crazy. We didn't know what to do. But that day, we were able to call each other and 15 people, 15 owners, showed up to just kind of be together and figure out next steps. Asia tells me that when that car crash happened, it was all hands on deck. I thought of myself as just a baker who also happens to own a bakery, but then I became like an insurance person. The Emeryville owners had to learn about filing for insurance claims, interior design, all the rebuilding, remodeling, you name it. It was full responsibility on the entire team. I wanted to hear from Asia about what being an owner looks and feels like here in the Bay. Right now, the East Bay, or the Bay Area itself, feels a little out of control for me. I have no control over where I live. I rent, and any minute, my rent could go up skyrocket, and I won't be able to afford to live here. But I know I'll have a job, because being an owner means that you have some sense of job security. We came here in pursuit of an answer to Columbia's question about why there are so many employee-owned pizza shops here. And we quickly found out that Cheeseboard really got this pizza game going. But why just pizza, Columbia asked. Why aren't there other types of restaurants that are employee-owned? Well, it turns out there are quite a few, and not just restaurants. The Bay Area, and specifically the East Bay, is a hot spot for employee ownership. We've also got companies that do energy consulting and import and export of fruits and vegetables, and we've got companies that do uh, manufacturing. I stopped by the NCEO, the National Center for Employee Ownership, a nonprofit in Oakland, to talk with their executive director, Lauren Rogers. We've got an economy where most businesses are owned by a very small segment of the population, and I think we ought to be thinking about who really who do we want to own our businesses? And employee ownership is one good answer as a way to get more people to owning a bigger part of the economy so that more people share in the wealth that the economy uh, produces. Lauren gave me a lay of the landscape and specifically three types of employee ownership. There's worker cooperatives, where each owner has a share of the business and an equal vote, a truly democratic business model. Companies like uh, Arizmendi and the Cheese Board are great examples of a, a really successful, dynamic worker cooperative. Then there are ESOPs, Employee Stock Ownership Plans. Zachary's Pizza is an ESOP. ESOPs, Employee Stock Ownership Plans, are the, the biggest uh, form of employee ownership in the United States in terms of the number of people involved, the number of companies involved. And that's a system where employees own the shares of their business uh, indirectly. It helps me to think of an ESOP as more of a retirement plan. Employees earn shares of the company's stock. They don't actually purchase them. Then they receive the full value of their stock when they retire or leave the company. It works a little bit like a 401k plan where the 401k owns the shares of the company's stock and employees get the benefit of that when they get to retirement age and they get the, the, the value of what's in their account. And the third one, equity compensation plans. Simply put, these are stock option plans, which give the employee the chance to buy stock in the company at a designated time and stock purchase plans, which allow employees to buy stock immediately. The plans come with different caveats and rights and privileges but the concept is really in the stocks. 
sort of the Silicon Valley model where everybody at a company gets a stock option. And that really does a great job of aligning everybody's financial interests, and it creates a lot of wealth for people who otherwise wouldn't have it. While worker cooperatives may feel like the face of employee ownership here in the Bay, ESOPs are by far the most popular form of employee ownership in the U.S. The interesting thing about ESOPs in the East Bay is how diverse they are. It's kind of a cross-section of the economy. Part of Lauren's job is measuring the impact of employee ownership on the livelihood of the owners. He shares a couple stats that speak specifically to my generation. If you look at millennials who are employee owners versus millennials who are not employee owners, the employee owners have about 92% greater net household wealth than the non-employee owners. For every $100 a non-employee owner, aka a regular employee, is making, an employee owner is making $133. And? They've got 53% greater job stability than the non-employee owners. So the impact on their day-to-day life is enormous. You know, I did these interviews with Lauren and Asia in late February, right before the COVID-19 pandemic. And as you know, a lot has changed since then. Arismendi closed its doors again after about a month of being back in business. Since then, all the Emeryville owners have gone on furlough. I called Asia up real quick to see how she's doing. Uh, we're, we're all still owners, so that means, you know, we know that our job's not going anywhere. We still have our job. We're able to see the finances. We see exactly how much is in our bank account. We see where all of our money or every dollar is going, what bills that still need to get paid. Many restaurants have shifted to takeaway only, while others have closed temporarily, and some permanently. Entire households are left without incomes, health insurance, or any guarantee of a job to go back to. Asia's husband also works in the food industry. We're both cooks. We've both always been cooks. We, we both work in this industry, and we're getting two vastly different views of what it's like. So he immediately got laid off. He got a text message from his supervisor that said, hey, don't come into work tomorrow. I'll let you know what's going on. And then he got a letter in the mail. Like, you are officially laid off. We're not giving you any money or anything. Good luck. Uh, When we open again, we'll let you know. And that is all. Whereas I'm on the other side, and I've got meetings every Monday where everybody is able to, to make the time to check in with everybody to say, How are you doing and what do you need? How's your family doing? Are you able to file for unemployment? If not, let us know what we can do to help you. It's a big difference in how we're both being treated at our jobs, even though we do the same thing. The Emeryville Airs Mendy is currently closed, but the team plans to open up again on May 27th with limited hours for takeout only. Check out the Arismendi Association's website to find out which locations are open during Shelter in Place. All right, and welcome back. That was that was reporter KQED. And I'm going to share some headlines I didn't get to today. The first would be about Roe v. Wade, the whole big thing that's happening. The Oh, goodness gracious. So it's, it's been featured in a lot of places. Um, this particular article is from uh, Democracy Now! In deathbed confession, plaintiff Wade admitted she was paid by abortion foes. came out on May 20th. Uh, it's a paragraph. I'm going to read it.
Norma Corby in a new documentary making what she describes as a deathbed confession because I was eating fish. I think it was a ritual thing. I took their money and they put me out in front of the cameras and told me what to say. That's what I said. It was all in did it well too. I'm a good actress. The film, aka Jane Rowe, reveals McCorby received at least Torrancinta and Simon has posted these film recommendations there as well at Simon Torrancinta and that's S-I-M-O-N-T-O-R-R-A-C-I-N-T-A so you can also find the link through there um, A to Z left on film this is a work in progress uh, peasant uprising strikes student movements red banners global malists resistance fighters fiery speeches guerrilla bands communists slave rebellions and a visit to Marx's grave at Highgate your one-step, one-stop broadly conceived depicted on film. Note this list zooms in on fictional or documentary depictions of conscious political action rather than all films about social realism, injustice, class conflict, or allegories about these things, talking head and archival footage docs, or films using...
We'll be back next week. Please do support artists, healthcare workers, folks on the front lines, people working in grocery stores, delivery people, a lot of folks who are putting their lives on the line. So thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Scientists, doctors, etc. All right. Activists, organizers, etc. Cool. Um, I played all the music I was planning to play today. So I'm going <laughs> to play that song I like to play a lot. And I just... I can't get enough of it, I guess. And this is from The Big Moon. And this is your life.
Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of Mutiny Radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> 